I don't think we can sit here and point fingers at the federal government or any of our governments or any of our politicians. Right. We've got to take control ourselves. Mm. So uh, innovators and entrepreneurs such as ourselves, of course, that's where we want to be. And of course, that's where we want to see these things. And of course, that's why we do what we do, because we want to see that. Right. But there's also you know, other sides that fight that. Mm-hmm. And there's other sides that don't necessarily line up with those same key attributes. Mm. Um, so if we were to be able to have a society that self-regulated themselves, did what's good for best and best for all, mm. um, there's no doubt we could get there. But it would take a completely different mind shift for, from a lot of our uh, individuals that you know share the same space as us. That was Bo Gertz. I'm your host, Michael Dunphy, and this is the Further Liberation Podcast. Bo and Jake work for a company called Farmbox Foods. Jake is the Chief Operations Officer, and Bo is the Genetics Lead. I found this company online and was very intrigued by what they were creating. Farmbox's primary focus is creating self-sustainable vertical farming systems inside shipping containers. Their intention is to provide more affordable, purely organic food to anyone and everyone they can. I am truly inspired by companies like this, and it was an absolute pleasure to learn more about this subject from these two very knowledgeable men. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, thank you for tuning in to the Further Liberation Podcast. All right, so where would you like to start? How do you do, how do you go about this, Michael? All right. So, well, um, first of all, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, first, I'd like to just learn about a little bit more about you guys. You know, I guess to give me the the quick story of how you guys got into this work, you know, what inspired you to do it and uh, what it is you do exactly. I'll let Jake go in with Farmbox first and then sure. I'll come in later. Yeah, we have two different companies and then a, a third company that uh, is kind of above the two that we'll talk about. So Farmbox, we, we initially started, <clears throat> we were going to build shipping container houses. So we, we bought some land outside of Denver in an area called Erie and Broomfield, or suburbs of Denver. Uh, and the reason why we wanted to is because the housing market is very expensive. You know, you can't buy a house in Colorado, at least in a, in a decent area, for under $350,000, $400,000. Mm-hmm. So we were going to do shipping container houses. Uh, during that process, we were designing a tube that would grow mostly leafy greens and herbs on the side of these containers. Okay. And International Building Code, um, it takes takes a long time to get something approved um, through IBC, which is International Building Code. So the cities, counties were telling us that it was going to take three to five years. Mm. So we ended ended up doing vertical hydroponic farms inside of the shipping containers. We looked at the industry. We looked at some of the competitors. We talked to people that were running the farms found out what they liked, what they didn't like. Um, and that's how we started the company. So we didn't know anything about it two and a half years ago. We just kind of got into it. Um, and since then, now we're, we're starting to scale. So we have a root vegetable hydroponic farm. I'm sorry, vertical hydroponic farm, mostly for beefy greens. We have a mushroom farm. And we're going to be working on a root vegetable farm and fruit. And then eventually aquaponics for fish and shrimp. Wow. And that, that can all be done inside the, the shipping containers? Yeah, so one one container is 320 square feet. It grows about the same 
uh, acreage is about three acres worth of produce. Wow. And, you know, 365 days a year. So it doesn't matter where, where it is. You can deploy them anywhere in the world. Um, you can stack them so you can compartmentalize them inside of a warehouse. You could put them in a field. You can put them in a desert, Arctic environment. Uh, they're all they're all insulated containers, so they're they they run really well wherever you put them. Um, we have we also have a solar company, so we're figuring out how to do solar, mm. so we can eventually do this in areas where there's no infrastructure. We're talking to some other countries, uh, mainly in in Africa, and they have limited infrastructure, so we need to be able to do this off grid. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's what we're working on right now as well. So currently, your systems are connected to the grid. That's how it gets the power. They're they're powered by the grid. Yeah, it's a two twenty phase. Uh, runs about five to seven kilowatt hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a lot of energy usage. But mainly, you're drawing energy from the air conditioning unit that's keeping it cool. Right. And the lights. It's a full spectrum LED that grows the plants. Mm-hmm. The mushroom farm doesn't have lights, so it's it's not running as much energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're you know. I have a, a lead engineer that's with our solar company. He's been in solar for about 32 years. Mm-hmm. So he's just a brilliant, brilliant mind. So he's figuring out right now how to do it on the mushroom farm that's at our facility. And then eventually we'll figure out how to do it on the vertical hydroponic farm that draws more energy. It'll probably look like some sort of microgrid system because the clients that we're going to be dealing with or, or that we are dealing with that want solar, they won't have one unit. They'll have 100 units. Oh. In an area that's off grid to feed okay. a large population. Wow. So we're we're figuring out right now. He's he's taking some data and doing some research and figuring out how we can do it and scale it. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have it figured out by the end of the year. That's amazing, man. So yeah. part of part of the one of the goals you guys have is to be able to make it available for off grid communities. Yeah, I think that's a big that's a big uh I think there's a lot of communities out there that would utilize the product mm-hmm. for food security, but don't necessarily have the infrastructure to just plug it in. Right. right. Now, some of our clients like hospitals and grocery stores, you know, it's pretty easy to put a container right next to their store right. or their right. hospital. But in areas where you're talking about areas like in West Africa, there's no infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so to feed a population, you have to have something that can run off grid. Yeah. Also talking to a company that, um, they have a product that reclaims moisture out of the air mm. and one of their products can run about 10 of our containers with the water that it produces. Wow. So it's basically drawing energy, uh, drawing moisture out of the air and then we're reclaiming that water goes through an RO system and that's the water that we can use. The, the plants, you know, they, it's a little bit different than traditional farming. So when you think of traditional farming, you think of a lot of labor, heavy equipment, a ton of water. Mm-hmm. This is a lot different. It's, it's indoor agriculture, so the energy usage is far less. The water is a lot less. You're using about, uh, in one container for a vertical hydroponic farm, it's about two gallons of water a day, okay. which in comparison is, is probably 98, 99% less than traditional farming. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. then the labor also is, is a lot less. So you usually, you know, to run a farm, um, it, it requires five or 10 hours a week. Mm. And, and once you, once you get it dialed in, you know, you can even lower that number a little bit. Right. Most of the time, the amount of labor comes when you're harvesting the plants or when you're, when you're seeding the seedling tray area to grow the plants. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, like five to 10 hours a week, you can have one person run multiple farms. It's, it's not very hard to run. It's right. at the end of the day, it's just farming, but it's mm. different than traditional farming. Uh, one thing I noticed I was when I was checking out your website, I looked at uh, the virtual setup you have where you can like walk through essentially kind of like uh, Google Street View. And yeah. I noticed I, I've seen what I what looks to be like a, like a Wi-Fi router. So I'm curious, like, are you able to make decisions or make control them in any way uh, remotely? Like you don't even have to be there. You can kind of change some settings or something like that. Yeah, it runs off of a system called Agrotech. Mm-hmm. They're a company that's been around uh, for a long time. They're they're heavily involved with CBD and cannabis world. Okay. So it's an automated system. You can run it from your tablet. You can run it from your phone. Right. You can change the humidity, temperature, lighting schedule. You can do all that mm-hmm. um, from from that system. Mm-hmm. Right on. Very cool. Um, another thing you're saying about like um, – that you're really interested in working in uh, getting some system set up in Africa. And you said that you, you think you're at the point now where you can set up a system that um, grows mushrooms with uh, solar as its power source. But is it, what's the issue when it comes to growing the plants? Is it just, it takes so much more because of the lighting? Like, are you able to just put solar panels on top of the shipping container and that should provide the mushrooms with enough energy or yeah so when you talk about solar you're going to need the panels and you're going to need an inverter Mm -hmm. and you're going to need a battery source right so think of like powering a house with solar you have the panels that are on top of the roof Mm -hmm. you have the inverter that's usually next to the electrical box right and then some solar systems have a battery storage where Mm -hmm. it's storing the power that it's not using while it's generating the power so Mm -hmm. in our in our case we would definitely want to have a battery storage Mm -hmm. because when the lights are on, the power usage is really high in the vertical farm. Right. And then when the lights are off, it goes way down. Of course, yeah. So we want something to be able to store that power when we're mm-hmm. not using it. The mushroom farm, you have some equipment like a steam generator. So you're taking the substrate when you're when you're first putting it in a bag to grow the mushrooms. The mm-hmm. substrate is typically like a wood pellet. It goes into a steam generator or something that sterilizes that product. Mm-hmm. And then you do the inoculation in the lab area. And then it goes into an area where the mushrooms actually grow in the fruiting chamber. So the power usage is far less with the mushroom farm. So we're going to first set up solar on the mushroom farm. And then eventually this year, I think we'll have solar set up on the vertical hydroponic farm. So this year we're, we're doing R&D on the mushroom farm. We're going to be building a root vegetable farm and then a fruit farm and then also an aquaponic farm. Right on. Hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have all that figured out and then and be able to run all that on solar if we need to. Right on. And do you think, um, right. is putting panels just on the roof of the shipping container, should that provide enough solar power? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. For the mushroom farm, probably with the vertical hydroponic farm, we might need more solar. So it might be a system where uh, it extends out, kind of mm-hmm. like a layered system. Okay, yeah. Or you could also do a solar farm right next to, if you have a client that, you know, some of our, our customers might want more than one. They may mm-hmm. they may end up doing dozens or hundreds. Mm-hmm. So you could do a solar farm right next to it to power everything. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah. is, there, is there any limits to like, well, I guess there are, but I, I guess my question should be, what are the limits to what you can grow? Like what can be grown hydroponically? Like you said, you've already got roots, mushrooms, and leafy greens. And you said you're talking about fruit systems as well. 
So would that be the fruits that grow like annually? Because obviously some fruit trees take like 10 years to fruit. So tell me more. Yeah. Well, with vertical hydroponics, typically you're not growing anything from a tree just mm. because it's it's really not, you're not able to do that unless mm -hmm. you're in a warehouse, which doesn't make sense either way. Right. Yeah. So the stuff that we're growing in the vertical hydroponic farm would be a couple dozen types of lettuce, basil, herbs. You could do peppers, mm -hmm. small peppers. You can do cherry tomatoes, strawberries, um, things like kale and spinach. So that would be the vertical hydroponic farm. When you get into a horizontal hydroponic system or aeroponic system where it's either flooding a tray with water or it's misting water underneath, then you can get into stuff like, you know, squash and zucchini and bigger root vegetables that mm. you can grow traditionally farming. Right. And then fruit, you know, anything that you can grow basically in the dirt that doesn't come from a tree, you can do inside, you know, with vertical hydroponics or horizontal hydroponics or aeroponics system. Mm -hmm. So we won't be able to grow everything that you can, you can get, you know, from traditionally farming right. it in the mm -hmm. ground, but pretty close to almost, almost everything eventually. So another like major fruit group that comes to mind will be like beans and legumes and stuff like that. Have you guys mm -hmm. ever considered something like that? We haven't done anything like that yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, I think when we, the, the system that we're going to develop next will be an aeroponic or a horizontal hydroponic system. Okay. So, and you know, when you look at the system that we have now, there's the vertical walls. Yeah. That will be a system that's horizontal and it'll be tables. Mm -hmm. So it will support the weight of root vegetables or mm -hmm. fruit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you, you can't grow everything vertically. Mm. You know, there's some things that don't, you just can't do it. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand. Yeah, we when we first built the first container, we grew probably about 60, 60 different things. Mm -hmm. you know, lots of lots of different types of variety of lettuce, a bunch of different types of peppers. We did strawberries. Um, we did a bunch of different herbs. Everything did really well. Um, we did have an issue with spinach. It started pollinating. It flowered. Oh, okay. that's because we had about twelve other things growing. Mm. in the container at the same time and we we didn't dial in the humidity and the temperature perfect for spinach mm -hmm. so that's another thing with the containers you, you can grow lots of different things in in the container at one time mm -hmm. and you can harvest at different cycles so it really depends the end user what they what they need it for what they want it for i see very cool um what was that i was going to ask um a friend of mine I was talking to last night, he's a farmer himself. So I asked him if he had any questions and he was wondering if you have ways to provide different nutrient sources for like different walls, like can, because different plants require different nutrients. So if, are you running the same level of nutrients through the entire water source or like, can you separate it out? So right now the vertical hydroponic farm, the, the one that you see online, by the way, is a lot different than what we have now. Okay. So we're going to be redoing our website within the next 30 to 60 days. It'll show the new version and, and the mushroom farm and then coming soon with the other stuff that we're working on. Right on. But what, what it looks like now is you have a tank that's in the rear that feeds water to all the walls. And then you have a tank that's in the front that mm -hmm. feeds water to the, to the seedling tray area. Okay. Um, and that nutrients is the same. Mm. So we, we have talked about possibly doing something where we can feed different amount or different types of nutrients mm -hmm. to each wall. And that's something that we could set up if we compartmentalize the tank 
and then did different pumps. We mm. just haven't had the need for it. Right. No one specifically has asked us to do that. Um, we use a plant-based nutrient. It's an organic plant-based nutrient. Um, we went through about 12 different types of nutrient companies when we started. That was mm. part of the first year, just going through the R&D and figuring out what worked, what didn't. Mm. We had issues with the nutrients uh, crystallizing and clogging a lot of different things in the system. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it has been something that we've thought about. We just haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, could you explain to me uh, what aeroponics is? Yeah, aeroponics would be typically, uh, you know, a horizontal system where there's water that's being misted mm-hmm. from underneath. Okay. That would be an aeroponic system. Is there a soil system or? Yeah, there's typically with hydroponics and aeroponics, usually you're not really using soil. Typically you'd be using a seedling plug. Mm-hmm. So for our, we have a couple different plugs that we use. One of our clients uses a plug from Jiffy plug. It's a organic plug that when it gets wet, it expands. Mm. And then the other plug that we use is a peat moss plug. So it's not, it's not really soil mm. that you're finding in, you know, in the ground. It's mm-hmm. more of a certain type of material put together to not fall apart. Mm. And that so it's just something, plant. it's just something for the seedling to grow in. It's just something for the seedling to grow. But the yeah. water, and the mist and the nutrients you provide, that gives everything the plant needs. Yep. Yeah. It gives everything the plant needs. The same thing as if it was planted outside. Mm. There's a big debate about organic, you know, indoor ag and, and does it get the same amount of nutrients from the light that you use versus the sun? Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of different studies on that. So you, you could argue that it doesn't, but I think, I think that it gives the lighting system, we use a full spectrum LED light. It gives off the same spectrum of light as the sun. Mm-hmm. So in theory, it's the same, it's the same nutrient right. that, that it's growing in the ground. Um, but then you're not, you're not worried about any sort of, bugs or yeah. pesticides you know you're not you're not poisoning anything so it's very yeah. clean um, yeah. and when you're harvesting the plant the root ball is it, it, it's in the plant so you know when you go to the store and you get the live living lettuce mm-hmm. with the root ball that's how every plant that you harvest out of a hydroponic system or an aeroponic system is so it's living for another 20 or 30 days if, right. if you store it correctly okay so Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, so I'm curious about uh, the cost as well. Like, what does it take? I, I assume you're buying old shipping containers and just modifying them yourself, right? Yeah, we, when we started, we were doing old used, they're called refrigerated high cube containers. So they're okay. like 40 feet by nine and a half feet tall. Mm-hmm. And we've since changed to buy brand new containers. Um, and we actually have a company that we're working with in, in the United States that actually are they're building brand new containers for us. So everything's everything's made in the U.S., including the steel from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So what kind? Like, say, if I wanted to get one container for myself, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of investment would I have to get it up and going? The vertical hydroponic farms are one hundred twenty-five thousand, okay. uh, and then we have a you know we have to get it there. So. We have to ship it there. Right. Um, the company that, what, what we really are is our a logistics company. Okay. That's the heart of our company. It just happens to build these farms. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about doing stuff in other states or countries, it's easy for us to get things 
there, set it up, train people. So you have training, which we can do on site. Typically, most of our clients opt to have us come out and train them where the farm is going to be located. Mm-hmm. And then we have to get it there. So shipping costs, it's going to depend on where it's coming from. Typically set up, it uses a, a spigot like a hose and then a 220 you know, outlet. Um, and you want to have typically a concrete footer on either side because the containers weigh about 12,000 pounds. Mm. So, you know, some, some people put them in a parking lot. Others, they'll set up footers on either side if it's in a field or wherever it's located. Mm-hmm. Some of these go in buildings and warehouses. So, and you can stack them. Um, so, that would be the cost is 125000 mm-hmm. Your return on investment typically is about 12 to 16 months if it's a vertical okay. hydroponic farm. The mushroom farm is going to be a little bit different because the price is 185000 but the turnaround time is, is usually quicker than that. Because mm. you're selling, if you're selling mushrooms, that are, you know, you can get six to twelve dollars, and sometimes more a pound. Mm. And the mushroom farm produces about four hundred to five hundred pounds of mushrooms a week. Wow! Um, and it's gourmet mushrooms. It's <laughs> not what you find at a grocery store. It's not the buttonhead mushrooms. So you're right. growing lion's mane, reishi, uh, oyster, blue oyster, king oyster mushrooms, stuff that you really rarely see. Yeah, right. So master healers. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool, guys, man. Yeah. This is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I, got, I actually have a list of questions. I rarely do this in my podcast because it's usually just like conversation form, but you guys, I just feel like yeah, you have works. so much information to share. Um, so we talked about what you can and can't grow. And uh, so, okay, how much can you... I think you might answer this, but I'll ask it again. How much can you produce? Like if we're talking, I suppose, like uh, leafy greens from one container and I guess how long does it take to go from seedling to uh, ready to harvest? Yeah. So seedlings are going to stay in this. You're going to plant in a, in a seed plug mm-hmm. and that's going to stay in the seedling tray for about seven to 14 days. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to implant those into the walls. Into mm-hmm. the tubes. So from seedling to harvest, or I guess I should say from seed to harvest usually are about 60 days. Some are going to be less. Some are going to be a little bit more like 65. Some are going to be like 45 days. And you have other plants that you're continually harvesting. Like if you're growing peppers, Mm -hmm. you're not planting it, growing it, and then harvesting it and planting another one. You're you're harvesting off of that plant. Or strawberries. Strawberries you can harvest for like three to five years off the same plant. Um, So usually you're, you're about... 45 to 60 days. Mm. And if you look at the harvest, um, most of our clients will harvest a wall at a time. There's three walls. Mm-hmm. In the um, we just, we did one at a hospital a few weeks ago and it was about 350, 400 pounds of lettuce. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an absurd amount of, of food. Right on, man. Yeah. It's a lot. That's cool. Yeah. Um, have you ever had any issues? Um, with like algae buildup or like, is there a, is there a way to prevent like the, the light getting into the, the nutrients water and stuff like that? Yeah. So we, we have a patented system that uses ozone and it, uh, venturi that aerates the water and aerates the water with the ozone. And there's a, you know, we go through and do a system flush where it flushes that ozonated water mm-hmm. through the system. So that was for about the first year we, we had issues with algae, right. white powdery mildew, all different kinds of things. And we 
kind of figured out what worked best. And we did that with um, our products and then talking to other, other indoor ag companies, people that were running farms similar to ours. We found out what they were doing that, were, that was working, you know, what they liked, and that's how we built the product. So we, we, I think we've gotten to the point where you know we're on version like 15 now. Mm-hmm. So the one that you see on our website, that was the first product that we built. Mm-hmm. So I think we're at the point now where I think we've we've dialed everything in. It's working the way that we want. And now we can scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, like how long when you do harvest everything, is that like just a, a day's work, a couple hours work? If you want to go harvest yeah. a container, how long would it take you? Yeah. Well, Bo was with me the last time we harvested at a hospital outside of Denver, it was about five minutes mm. to harvest the wall. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of people, usually you're like five or 10 minutes to harvest the whole wall. Mm-hmm. The stuff that takes time is usually when you're planting the seeds, but we actually have a product that makes it really quick to plant all the seeds. Um, so you're not planting each seed in, in the seedling tray because mm-hmm. there's 10 trays in each row and there's 220 seeds per tray. Mm-hmm. So we have a product that you can actually do that within like a few minutes. Wow. Uh, what takes time typically is just, it is just the maintenance and cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but we built the farm to be as low maintenance as possible and as easy to use um, with the most yield. Cool. Wow. So um, in terms of like price, how much in comparison, like if you were to get a, a big thing of roll, like a big bag of like three hearts of romaine lettuce at the grocery store. I can't remember what I used to pay for that, but I'm just probably like anywhere from like five to $10. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, are you able with this type of system to make way better prices available for people? Yeah. Yeah. Your, your, your cost is about 11 cents per head of lettuce. Wow. Um, and it, it can even be lower than that, depending on <laughs> where you're growing it. And, you know, what your labor cost is, Mm -hmm. um, how you're running it, because everybody's going to, even though we have standard SOPs and training manuals and videos, everyone's going to run it a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So we have some of our farms that have been purchased by actual farmers Mm -hmm. that have a farm and they use this to supplement what they're already growing. Okay. So they were probably, they're they're probably, their cost of operating is probably going to be less than, um, you know, a hospital that we just trained and they have mm. their staff and there's three different people and they're not doing it the same. Um, so it just depends on the, the cost, the operational cost. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're, you're like pennies. Yeah. Pennies. I mean, that's it's amazing. literally, yeah. And the mushrooms, that, that's, that's even better because yeah. yeah, typically you're, you don't find the type of mushrooms that you can grow right. in that container. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we haven't done that cost yet, but we're working on it over the next three, three months. We'll be mm. um, with that being said, like since your prices are going to be so good <laughs> and so affordable, have you faced any like bureaucratic red tape, essentially trying to slow things down for you? Trying to be like, you know, because obviously you're going to be a competitor for some major farms and some major suppliers of food. So I'm just curious if you come up against anything. Yeah, I think uh, just looking at food, food security, um, Mm. I don't think there's just one. uh, I think there's a lot of different things going on that can be a solution. So I don't Mm. think we're 
I don't think we're the only solution. Um, big agriculture probably won't like what we're doing. Right. Um, but, you know, most of our clients right now are hospitals, grocery stores. We're, we're doing some stuff with federal and local government and military. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, our company's really in its infancy right now. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting to the point right now where we, we can scale. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've started working with other manufacturers so that we can outsource our product within the United States so we can start building 100 or 200 or 300 of these at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will give us the ability to scale. And I'm sure at some point we'll probably run into some organizations or, you know, you know, people within the industry of you know, commercial farming that won't like what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, like you yeah, said, I, I think agriculture is changing, you know, yeah. people are starting to understand that, you know, where their food comes, comes from is important. Mm-hmm. Starting to understand they can't be eating poison. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most of the food that is out there is straight poison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want to know where their food comes from. They want to be able to have access to food. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're trying to do is give everybody the ability to have decentralized food security. So whether it's in an inner city or an area, uh, you know, in West Africa or anywhere around the world that people have access to fresh, whole, you know, super organic food. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it needs to be done. And like you said, like um, the the industry is changing. And many years ago, you might have been shut down right away or had so many obstacles put in your way that you would have never been able to pull it off. But yeah. I think uh, it seems a lot, not even just in necessarily what you're doing, but in many different areas, it seems big industries are adapting to what the demand is now because more people are realizing that the food that they get from the grocery store is littered with all kinds of pesticides and all kinds of other poisons grown in terrible soil. And so they just understand that there needs to be a better option. So it's kind of like the industry is like adapting to that and saying, you know, we'll take on these new practices. And you even said that you've, you've worked with some pretty big farms as well. Like if they couldn't, uh, if they're, uh, they're the, the farmers that we have, we have, for instance, we have a unit that's in, it's outside of Atlanta mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a smaller family farm. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say industrial farm. Okay. Okay. But what I see happening in the future, I don't know what that looks like, but I see companies like Cisco, mm. you know, decentralizing their food security right. so that they can become the company that does super organic, mm. you know, corny mushrooms. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to do it. Exactly. Yeah. If it's not Cisco, it's going to be somebody else. Yeah. So we're just giving these companies and local and federal governments and other places in the world the opportunity mm-hmm. and the ability to do that themselves. Right. Um, and also what we're doing is we're, we're creating jobs. So mm-hmm. we're bringing manufacturing back to the United States, right. you know, and we're creating jobs because somebody's, somebody has to run these farms. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily extremely labor intensive, but somebody has to be trained. Somebody has to run it. The mushroom farms are a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more to them. It's not like planting a seed and putting it in a wall and harvesting it in 45 or 60 days. There's a process. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit more time intensive. Um, But, you know, it is job creation, Mm -hmm. you know, so these can be deployed at homeless shelters, you know, food banks, 
who were actually talking to a fairly large food bank company. Right and that would be able to create jobs within that local community. Mm. Um, you know, we have, for instance, we have a 501c3 set up in, on the south side of Chicago. We're talking about putting containers and having some somebody run that along with uh, some of the youth. Mm. So having these kids have a connection with where their food comes from, mm. um, that's a big deal. You yeah. know, and, and it's everywhere that you look. Like if you go on a military base, the only thing that you'll see is fast food. Yeah, right. Okay, so our soldiers need to be fed better. Of course. Yeah. Fed better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bo and I were just talking earlier about, you know, um, retirement communities, you mm-hmm. know, and nursing homes. Right. This is a perfect opportunity for them because that, that, that needs to be something that, you know, we start figuring out, mm-hmm. you know, or is our food security. Yeah. So... Yeah. And another thing you said uh, that was really interesting to me was that you said that you got some setup in hospitals as well, because not only should our soldiers be fed better, but it's often the case that people get hospital food that is often like cancer causing food. <laughs> you know, So that it's really good to know that your systems are being integrated into hospitals. Is that something that's being well accepted or is it hard to get in there or? Yeah. So the first hospital that we started working with, they actually reached out to us. Um, mm-hmm. Since then, we've been talking to some other hospital networks that are nationwide. Mm-hmm. So uh, the hospital that we're working with right now, they have 17 hospitals in a couple of different states. Right. And they're they're putting these at all their hospitals. And then they're going to set up a facility in Denver that's going to be a little bit of a larger facility where they might have 10 or 20 containers inside of a warehouse around some of their property. Okay. And then that feeds other hospitals. So they're, they were less concerned about the ROI and more concerned about, hey, we, we want to stop buying food from Cisco that mm. is the same price as a restaurant in Denver. Mm. That's a three or four star restaurant. Right. But right. we're getting we're getting really not good quality and it's expensive. And we want to start being able to have our own food security. Mm-hmm. So we want to be able to feed our patients and our staff and our visitors the best food possible. Right. And and that's how they approached us. Um, and since then, we've we have an open PO. We're putting containers at all their hospitals, training all their staff to run it. So um, they haven't really done a PR release. I think I think our social media team is working with them now. And you'll see more stuff about the company w- within the next sixty to ninety days because we have some fairly large clients, but they have their own PR departments, and right. we have to redo our website to reflect mm-hmm. what we're doing. So. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's, I mean, people are interested in it. They're, mm-hmm. they think it's cool. They want to know more about it. Um, you know, if, if a hospital's feeding their own, their own patients and staff and visitors, really super clean food, mm. it's all positive. And that's amazing. So much is yeah. going to change from this. That's yeah. it's going to have a big ripple effect for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I guess the only other thing I was wondering about in that area of thought is, uh, was it hard to get approved by like the FDA? So we haven't, you know, we are actually in the process of going to get our own certification. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to label the product that we build or the products that we build as super organic Mm -hmm. because they're actually, it's actually better than organic. If you look at organic standards, our, Mm -hmm. our product is better than organic. Yeah. But we have a legal department 
that's their job. They're they're going to be figuring that out over the next six to twelve months. Is my mm. guess. Right on. Yeah. So you're still, yeah, I'm not sure how about like how it works in America. I'm in Canada in case you didn't know, yeah. but uh, yeah, I was just wasn't sure if like you were even allowed to sell your own food on the scale that you are, unless you had the approval of the FDA. Well, we aren't, we aren't actual, we are not the actual farmers. So mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're building the product and then enabling the corporation or the individual uh, or the company to grow their own food. Right. So with the hospital network, for instance, you know, they don't necessarily need to be approved by the FDA right. because what they're doing is they're, they're getting licensed and the permits and everything done. So mm-hmm. they can put this next to the hospital then grow the food. And then there's certain SOPs and food safety practices that they follow mm. to be able to actually put that food on a plate right. and give it to their patients or staff. Right. Um, I'm sure as we, as we get into other industries, there probably will be, some certifications that we need to go through and do mm-hmm, right. um, in order to do what we're doing, but mm-hmm. we're just not there yet. But yeah, as far as the FDA, they, you know, th- this is just a product to enable that corporation or company to grow their own. Right. So they would have to have the licensing and the, and the approval. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, yeah. SOP, is that standard of practice? Standard operating procedures. Okay. So that would be, you know, typically when somebody walks in a farm, they sign their name in and out and, you know, they put gloves on or right. wash their hands and, you know, things like that, especially with what's going on with COVID and the, mm-hmm. the environment that we're in. It's mm-hmm. really, we have to be super sensitive about right. all that. So that's what an SOP is. It's just how do you run the day-to-day operations of actually growing the food mm. and putting it from the container to, to the plate. Yeah. And you guys got all that set up in the container itself. You go in, there's a sink you wash your hands in. There's a sink, um, typically with most of our clients. So they, they actually have a kitchen or an area where they can take the food that they're growing mm-hmm. and, and wash it the correct way right. before they package it or give it to their, you know, in the hospital, it's just their patients and staff in grocery stores. It's actually, you know, they're harvesting it. And then there's an area where they wash it, package right. it, and, and it's right there. Wow. So perfect. You guys got a great setup. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, most most there. There's one thing with the tubes that typically, when you know, every three to six months, you're actually cleaning the tubes that are growing the seedling. You know, out of the, okay, that's coming out of it. Right. So yeah. you're going to take those tubes down and you're going to clean it. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of our most of our clients right now have industrial dishwashers, so they're just okay. putting those right through the dishwasher. Ah. That's convenient. Um, but we've talked about doing a, um, some sort of system inside the container that would actually clean it um, so you don't have to go outside. So we're, we're talking to, as an example, we're talking to Inu communities okay. in British Columbia and Canada and Alaska. Mm. And, you know, when it's winter for like eight months mm. and it's cold, you can't yeah. take stuff outside and, yeah, and of course. wash it off. So. Those are some things that we're figuring out for some of these clients where it's a unique. Mm-hmm. Right on. That's good to know because yeah, just living in Canada, I hear all the time about the food security, especially up north, is terrible. Like yeah, uh, we actually have a client that's that's uh, in. I think he's in Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. and he's he has a couple farms, um, and he you know his his farms that he runs are a huge you know revenue stream for him. Um, 
you know, the community knows about it because he's the only one that's doing it in the wintertime. Right. And, you know, the logistics of getting stuff to these communities. I mean, when you're talking about Alaska, you know, there's areas in Alaska where you, you can't, you know, get there unless you're flying. Right. And yeah. half of the year it's winter, you know, more than half of the year or it's mm-hmm. dark for six months. So, yeah. um, yeah, there's, there's a huge need for this, not only in inner cities, uh, you know, in food deserts like the United States, um, but there's a huge, huge need for, for this in other parts of the world where mm-hmm. food is a big issue. You know, oh, yeah. Water is also a big issue. Yeah. So the fact that we can grow, um, you know, acres upon acres of food with a couple gallons a day of water, mm-hmm. very little labor, uh, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Talking about communities that, you know, water. As an example, one of our one of our sales team members is from Israel, and water is a big issue in Israel. And one of our sales team members is from Cyprus. Water is a big issue in Cyprus. So, traditional farming is not ever going to go away, mm-hmm. uh, and big agriculture is not ever going to go away. But with the population increasing and water becoming scarce land is becoming scarce right you know this is just one of the solutions there's many many solutions right yeah this is just one that can fit a lot of different uh, problems mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah hmm yeah so um what was the other thing i was going to say uh hmm. well i just like the idea in general of yeah, talking cool. about all the all the different solutions there are because clearly the way we've been running our food systems has not been beneficial for everyone because there's obviously a lot of a lot of people don't have access. Oh yes, the water. Um, you said that there's a tank on the front and on the back. So do you fill those yourself or are you hooked up to a, a, a local water source? Yeah, usually they're just hooked up to a local water source. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have access to to a local water source, then it just remains hooked up to it. Right. Um, but in areas where it gets really cold, typically you'll have a tank that's in the ground or you fill up the tank every, you know, so often, but Mm -hmm. the tank in the rear is about 172 gallons and the tank in the front is like, you know, 45 gallons. So you're not usually filling the tanks up, um, very often. The front tank is the ceiling tray area and that's where you're flooding the trays that are growing the seeds. The seedling trays, mm-hmm. so that's like once a day. It doesn't use a lot of water. Right. The rear tank is where it's going into the walls and dripping down through the tubes and recirculating. So that you know, whole system is using a couple of gallons a day. Um, have you ever? Go ahead. Have you ever had the 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 necessity to actually uh, like purify the water or clean it in any way? Because like just speaking from my personal uh, situation. I don't live there anymore, but the town I grew up in as a really, uh, there, there's two separate parts of town and one part of town is uh, off this spring gulch and they got really good water. But where I grew up in the Valley, um, the water is terrible. Like sometimes you run a bath and it's almost pure Brown. So <laughs> I'm just curious, like if you're yeah. up to a local water source all the time, is there ever a time where you're like, this water isn't sufficient. We need to clean it before we use it. Yeah, we have a pretty robust uh, RO system that filters the water through the seedling tray area and the rear tank. Mm-hmm. So there's two RO systems, and then there's some other uh, things that we patented that clean the water as it's as it's being filtered 
through and going through the system. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had any issues yet, but I'm sure when we start doing stuff in uh, mainly, you know, maybe even in, within the U.S., but other places in the world, I'm sure we'll have to we'll have to figure out how do we clean the water so it's good enough before it actually goes into our RO system. Right, right. But right now we haven't had to deal with anything. Right, yeah. Yeah, that might be an issue more when you're way up north in Canada because apparently there's a lot of water uh, issues up there as well. Yeah, but yeah. I think they. I think for a lot of communities, they'll get their water shipped in. Like a, a truck will actually drive full of water from another community because their local water source is terrible. Yeah, well, that's happening in California and some other areas in the right. U.S. where they don't actually have water. Yeah, exactly. But they're getting all the water shipped in because all the water's gone. That's insane, man. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. So, um, Bo, right? That's correct, sir. So what is your role in all this? So uh, I come in from a uh, heavy medical entrepreneur um, background. Okay. And I'm here to personalize the food that the individuals are eating. So I own a genetic laboratory, and we're also very heavy in the COVID. We've come out with the nation's first saliva-only mass spectrometer uh, COVID testing. Okay. So we're able to provide the most accuracy and the highest throughput, while at the same time looking at a patient's mental health genetics and also looking at the best food sources hmm. so that they can get the best nutrients that their body will metabolize. There's a big difference between ethnicities and the food sources that you need to eat compared to a different ethnicity. Right. So really tethering this in so that we can help boost our immune systems, get the most nutrients, and with the flex that's going on in the agriculture industry, with grocery prices skyrocketing, food sources becoming more scarce, mm. now is more the time than ever to find out what your body really needs to eat mm. so you can metabolize it well, so you can be healthy, and your immune system is in optimal condition to fight COVID or not get COVID, and also just to be the best you can be from a health standpoint. Mm. Amazing, man. That's so cool. Yeah, so... um so you say you got a different type of testing, so you don't have to stab that thing down your nose anymore? Yeah, no more poking the brain. Uh, <laughs> That's good to you know. know. We, it's good to know. <laughs> uh, we, I'm very proud of what uh, my team has been able to do. Uh, we went to the number one respiratory hospital in the nation, and we validated our science with them. And we did it with nasal swabs and also saliva. And then... We started seeing that there was an issue, not only just in the saliva as well, because what we had was um, a spit tube collection, and we need to get two uh, mLs of spit, which is quite a bit. And also, a lot of people don't like just sitting around, you know, for multiple minutes, some people up to 10 minutes, just because they don't produce enough saliva, Mm. spitting in these tubes. Mm. And then there's also an issue for our seniors that don't create a lot of saliva. Right, right. And we said, all right, we got to figure this out. So we went and we trademarked and have our own proprietary offering where you put a foam sponge underneath your tongue mm-hmm. and keep it there for two minutes, up to five minutes if you have uh, salvatory issues. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you just put it back in the tube and send it back. And the coolest part about this is you don't need a medical professional to stab your brain. Mm-hmm. So you now can do this at your own house or you can do this at a physician's office and it doesn't have the same PPE requirements. So we drastically uh-huh. cut down the amount of PPE needed as well. Wow. That's amazing, man. And, um, is it any different in terms of accuracy? Uh, very big difference. Really? So what you're seeing out with uh, in the market right now, like if you look at the White House, they're using a PCR uh, mm-hmm. uh, method for testing. 
right. that can have anywhere between a 30 to 40% error rate. Right. And right now with ours on a mass spectrometer, which is a very sensitive uh, testing, it's called MSPCR. Mm-hmm. And we right now have a 12% error rate. And we think that's going to go down with more population that we test. Oh, okay. So what's the MS stand for? Mass spectrometry. Oh, right. Okay. I see. Yeah. Cause like, I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm not very educated on the subject, but a little bit of research I have done, I just heard that uh, the PCR test is not reliable, essentially. Like it, it has a lot of false positives. Like it's even triggered by something in our body that is secreted when we have any type of toxicity. Uh, and again, I don't know if this is accurate or if it's just, but uh, apparently when, when we're, when our cells have any sort of toxicity, our cells secrete these things called exosomes. And they are very similar in molecular makeup to the virus itself. So you could be detecting exosomes with the PCR test and it makes it look like you have the virus when in reality, it's just that your cells are toxic for some other reason. Have you heard about this? Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I mean, that's what my career is about. So Mm. um, yeah, I mean, you're tracking very, very well. Um, And that's also why we wanted to do the saliva because that opens up additional testing uh, that we can provide. So we're, um, we're speaking with numerous uh, nursing homes right now, mm-hmm. and we're talking about doing personalized uh, food for their community, but also based upon, you know, their health conditions and also where they might be from like a cortisol perspective mm. or from a cytokine perspective so that we can right. make the best food for that community that's happening at that current time right. with their cortisol levels and also with their inflammation scales. And the reason why we bring in cortisol is because cortisol is the stress hormone mm-hmm. and prolonged stress increases drastically increase the ability to have depression. Right. So if we have these people who have been isolated, they can't see their families. This is the time where their cortisol levels are probably pretty high. Yeah. So let's give them the most nutrient dense food we can get. Let's try mm-hmm. and curb this as quick as possible with food. Mm-hmm. Um, you come from, uh, I have over a decade just in mental health, uh, Um, entrepreneurship, promoting pharmacies, hospitals to uh, laboratories. And there's only two things that I've ever seen that have really helped with that mental health perspective. And it's not pharmaceuticals. Mm. It is exercising activities and eating healthy. Mm. Agree more. It's very cheap. It's very cheap. And we can do this. And now that we found a source that can provide the food and a cost effective means Mm. and a mass production means, you're now going to start seeing these shipping containers, hopefully at a lot of nursing homes and also for us to start doing this direct to consumer based upon how the patient's responding to stress, how their body's responding to inflammation so that we can curb hypertension. We can curb diabetes. We can curb rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Um, The number one killer in this nation is inflammation and mushrooms are great anti-inflammatory. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that we're doing here that are trying to be parallel and solve lots of issues, mm-hmm. solve the COVID, you know, let's defeat COVID, let's defeat mental health and let's get good, healthy initiatives and good, healthy food on the table for all of our seniors and for all of our communities to be able to thrive and put this behind us and at least curb these issues while everybody else is fighting the other political issues and the other issues that they may be facing. Right. Yeah. And it, like, well, like we were saying earlier with Jake, it's like, it's going to have a major ripple effect. You start changing the mental health of the country, then like everything else changes as well. You know, yeah, politics exactly. runs more smoothly. Everything changes when everybody's in a better state of mind. Yeah, when people are happy. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a big difference there. So that's what we want to do. You know, it's not, we, yes, we have a lot of problems to solve. We're trying to do this in an inspiring way. Yeah. You know, people can do this. We can own this. We can, mm-hmm. 
we, we can educate and we can take this down and do this from an individualized, personalized perspective and also from a global perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about some of the ways in which people uh, differ in their nutrient requirements. Cause the only thing like I, I a hundred percent, understand that that's a, a thing but i'm just wondering if you have any examples because the only example that comes to my mind is that i heard a couple of years ago that like 75 percent of the world is like uh lactose intolerant and the majority of those people who are lactose intolerant are non-white people usually like asians black people uh i think maybe um people from the middle east as well they just have they're more inclined to be lactose intolerant and i think that might be because um, you know, Eastern Europeans, white people in general have been drinking milk more consistently. So they, they remain, they retain this enzyme in their stomach. I think it's called lactase. We all have it when we're babies, so we can digest our mother's milk, but then we usually lose that enzyme at, at like two or three years old. But if a population continues to drink cow's milk, goat's milk, or whatever, it encourages the body to continue producing lactase. But and since that's more prevalent in white cultures, they are more uh, able to digest milk properly. Whereas people of color often um, become lactose intolerant because it wasn't as consistent in their culture. So that's just one example I know of. Uh, well, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well. But I'm just also curious of other ways in which people of different backgrounds uh, require different nutrients. Okay, so great question. But the the real answer is um, it's it's absolutely crucial when it comes to ethnicity, mm. uh, how a Caucasian metabolizes food, how an Asian metabolizes food, how an African-American metabolizes food are drastically different. Mm -hmm. um, everything from vitamin D to L-methylfolate to MTHFR. MTHFR would probably be my number one gene that I would associate with the ability for, from ethnicities to be able to metabolize and also get out the toxins in their body. Okay. If you have an MTHFR uh, deficiency, mm -hmm. your body will hold on to toxins. It will not get out. It will not rid them. Oh. It will clog up the gut. That's where the gut health and digestive health really starts to get into be a very big focus and a very big issue. Mm. And with the genetic testing, we can look at that. We can see if this patient has that deficiency and address it with simple supplementation. And again, mm. not expensive. And it could even be broccoli. I mean, we could be looking at very different diets and being able to do this from a very cost-effective uh, perspective. So you don't need to go to the GNCs of the world. You don't need to mm. go into these, you know, big supplement companies that want to, you know, sell you two hundred dollars worth of products. Mm. Again, if we can tailor this in from a food perspective, we can do this in a very cost-effective manner. Right. Uh, would you agree with the statement that we can uh, get all of our essential nutrients from food itself? Like supplements aren't necessarily necessary you know there's that that's such a big debate mm -hmm. <clears throat> for the common person no doubt now mm -hmm. if we're looking at somebody who you know wants to get on the stage and be mr olympia mm. um could they yes mm -hmm. would they probably not because there's just other ways you know with the biohacking community and everything of that sort it's a very big debate right. but what i personally believe and this is just my personal belief mm -hmm. is yes you don't need the supplements you need the food and you right. need the correct Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that makes sense because I guess what I was mostly curious about is that, like the average human could live optimally with just, you know, the food from the earth kind of thing. But I'm sure there are uh, instances, like you said, where people might have a genetic deficiency where they might need 
to eat more uh, of one nutrient, but in order to get that from food, they might need to eat like, you know, five pounds of kale a day or something. So rather than eating the five pounds of kale, they would just take a supplement or something like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. That's yes, I would definitely agree with that statement. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking from uh, at least my personal uh, diet, I suppose, I'm curious what your your thoughts are on having no animal products in your diet, because I, I haven't eaten any animal products in years. And for me, it was a health decision. At first, I read a book. I don't know if you've ever heard of him as a, by a guy named Dr. Joel Furman. And he wrote a book called Eat to Live. And essentially, it was all about how you can obtain all your essential nutrients that the body needs solely from plants. So I'm just curious what your opinion is on that. Another, uh, another big debate for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge debate. Yeah. Uh, I personally do like my red meat. Um, I, I do like having my chicken and everything of that sort. I do mm -hmm. find that um, there are nutrients out there that they provide that are essential as well. Mm -hmm. um, but where I do totally agree um, in regards to this debate is uh, as, the, as Americans, and I don't know how the diet is in Canada, mm. but as Americans, we eat too much of the red meat. We eat right, too yeah. much too much of the chicken, you know, and I think that a very good balanced diet and going back to the old food pyramid might not be a bad idea. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that's what basically what I was curious about is just like, I was just wondering, uh, not even that, like, you know, to each their own, eat what you want, but I was just wondering if you believe that it is healthy or, or you could live optimally with just plants. Yeah. And I mean, let's, uh, you know, if you start to throw in the mushroom complexes mm. and you're starting to, and you're starting to throw in, the leafy greens and everything of that right. sort. Yeah. I don't think there's a doubt. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. Um, obviously there's going to be a debate for everything I say, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if you're starting to bring in your cordyceps, your reishi, your lion's mane, mm. you're getting some of those good hearty, um, uh, uh, benefits from those. And then you're throwing in your kale, your lettuce, your tomatoes, uh, mm -hmm. your peppers, everything of that sort. There's no doubt that you could live a healthy lifestyle. I don't think right. anyone can sit here and say, Oh, that's unhealthy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the only, uh, the argument that I've often heard is that, uh, the only nutrient that you don't get readily from plants is, uh, vitamin B12. And so, and the, you typically do that, get that from animal products because, um, but the, the misconception is that vitamin B12 comes from animals, but in reality it comes from the soil. Uh, vitamin B12 is made by a bacteria that blankets the whole earth. So if you're eating, if you're eating your, you know, if you're eating your romaine lettuce from your own garden, then you're going to get your vitamin B12 because you're, you're getting a little bit of that dirt. You know what I mean? Cause that's how you get it. But whereas our food now is so sterilized, you know, we pick the romaine lettuce and then we get rid of every single bit of dirt on there. So that vitamin doesn't remain. So that's why. You know, this, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Yeah. So I was just wondering like if there's anything else you thought of that was, was of an essential nutrient that you couldn't get from plants. But because, um, you know, I've, I've had this conversation many times over the few last few years making that decision myself. But um, yeah, um, vitamin B12 seems to be the only thing that may not be readily available. But again, if you are, you know, eating from your own garden, you're going to get it. But if you eat from only the grocery store, then it's almost, it's smart to take a vitamin B12 supplement because most people would get it because, the animals are eating from the dirt. So then you get it because they have it in their bodies. And, but then even in factory farming, a lot of them aren't eating from the dirt. They're eating from green that we feed to them. So even, um, 
even the livestock is injected with B12 because they're not getting their B12 like they normally should. So then people end up getting their B12 from what was injected into a cow and then goes into it, his body, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, man. So that's really cool that you say that. Um, well, let me, uh, let me. I sorry for interrupting. No, go ahead, man. Um, that's the reason why I brought up the MTHFR. Right. So MTHFR okay. is how your body can uh, produce and also be able to take in the B12. Oh, I see. It's a very, okay. it's a very, it's a very significant pathway. Right. Okay. I've never heard of that one before. What is it? Do you know what it stands for? MTFHR. Yeah, methyl. Whew. I'm not even going to try. I'm not <laughs> even going to try. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's cool, man. So yeah, man, you guys, you're, uh, you're giving me great hope. I love connecting with people like you because it just shows me that there are other ways of doing things that are far more smart than what we're doing right now. You know, we can actually take care of this world in a lot better way. And I guess uh, that just kind of leads me to a question. I, I often say, and I'm a firm believer that we have the capacity and the knowledge and the technology and the resources to feed everybody on this planet. But the way our system is set up is kind of making it more limited. And I just, I'd just love to get your thoughts on that. Would you agree with that statement? Do you think we can feed seven and a half billion people? If we yeah, change no doubt. Yeah? No doubt. Innovation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the standard ways that we, you know, that's maybe one of the good things that's happened from this pandemic is it's actually exposed a lot of our weaknesses. Mm, and I agreed. would imagine that, you know, if we don't make some serious innovations and some serious changes, um, we're all going to be in some pretty, uh, pretty unfavorable situations. Yeah. And I would imagine that we're going to be seeing a lot more of these vertical farms. We're going to be seeing mm. a lot more innovation in other industries as well. Um, you know, I look at this vertical farm and the hydroponics and how they're able to do the mushrooms and these shipping containers as, you know, possible pivots to the Green New Deal mm. um, and doing it in a way that is actually feasible mm -hmm. and that can be done and actually executed in a rather quick manner. Right. So the Green New Deal, that's a proposal that's it's still not decided whether or not they're doing that yet. I guess that will come out w within the president election if they want to actually go ahead with that or. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what's going on there? But yeah, yeah. I just remember hearing probably about like, it a little bit. Probably like you do in Canada. We have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Not many do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, what's clear to me is that we got to take the power into our own hands, man, because depending on our leaders to feed everyone and clothe everyone and shelter everyone has obviously not turned out the way it should. And we're not in many ways living a healthy lifestyle. Like even you said, I love what you talk about how the, the key to mental health is, you know, exercise, nutrition, all that. Now there, from my point of view, uh, there might be points in time where perhaps you have such a severe mental illness that pharmaceuticals might be necessary but pharmaceuticals should be like a, a temporary thing to get you moving towards a healthier lifestyle. But if you've lived your whole life with like schizophrenia or something like that, it might be difficult for you to just change the way you eat and start exercising. And then your mind is fixed, you know? Well, yeah. And you, again, another excellent point. So in this, uh, the genetic testing that I do mm -hmm. is called pharmacogenetic testing. Okay. So we're looking at the, how the body metabolizes, not just food, but we also in these reports provide the 200 top prescribed medications and how your body would metabolize. Mm -hmm. And during the assessment, if patients would like to understand how the body's currently metabolizing what prescriptions they are taking on a daily basis, mm -hmm. we could do that as well. 
And I can tell you from, you know, uh, this is my fourth laboratory now. Uh, there is a lot of prescriptions people are taking on a daily basis that their body does not metabolize. Right. And they're spending a lot of uh, unneeded copays and deductibles towards them. Mm. So not only can this genetic test tell you how to, you know, best fight maybe mental health, also teaching their best lifestyles, but also be almost like a financial planning tool of, hey, I can take this medication. I can't take this medication. Right. I need to be taking this. And maybe if I take these foods, I can get off this medication. So then again, being cost effective and being fiscally responsible and how we go about this approach and how we tailor the diets and why this is so beneficial. Mm-hmm. So if I'm understanding this right, you can, by using the genetic testing, you can determine whether or not a medication would actually work for someone. That's not, that's, that is the sole purpose of pharmacogenetics. That's amazing, man. Yeah, because usually it's just trial and error. A doctor says, oh, you've got depression, try this one. And they'll go and take it for two months. It might be being metabolized, but they might not notice the effects. They might, you know, their depression might be too strong or something like that, or it's not a good one for them, so it doesn't work for them. But you can actually see their genetics and say, this one will work for you and this one won't. Yeah, again, we're, you know, we're going to have to rethink about this whole thing called healthcare. Yeah, And the whole trial and error uh, makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah, exactly. There's better ways to find out. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. Wow. Okay. Um, I guess I've asked pretty much everything I have to ask. Um, before, I, I, I guess I only have really one real question that I just like to discuss in general. But before I do, I was just wondering if there's anything you guys want to share that uh, we haven't talked about so far that you think is pertinent or you like any information that you would like to share with uh, anybody who might be listening. Yeah, so we're trying to create a new industry. Um, we're trying to get personal trainers to get really involved. We think it's, uh, uh, wellness is essential. And what we mean by, by that is we're going to need to get personal trainers, dietitians, and not only are they very valuable, but also getting them in with these communities and having intimate relationships with their clients. And we are putting together some proposals for some associations together so that we can get people to get into the activities have someone help monitor them, help educate them on the best foods so that we can do this on a very proactive level and also on an intimate level. Um, and we have a, some pretty good lucrative streams for individuals who want to jump into these uh, fields and specifically into our senior market because that seems to be the highest prevalence of the diabetes, hypertension, and also uh, the ones that are most often overseen in regards to uh, physical activity. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, we're looking for people who are very specific within the senior market mm-hmm. to be able to help us fulfill and create these new industries and new income revenue streams for people who maybe have been out of work. Right. Very cool. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jake? Any, anything to add? Um, well, yeah, you asked a question earlier about, you know, can we, can we do this, you know, on a large scale? Mm. I think it's going to take um, a lot of innovation and, a lot of forward thinking mm-hmm. uh, to rethink, you know, food security. But I think we can do it. It's going to take some time. Yeah. But the, the idea is to make, you know, these communities self-reliant, right? Um, and have high, hyper-local food security and mm-hmm. decentralized food security. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what we're trying to do. So we're we're trying to scale to actually be able to do that. We're we're getting closer every day. Right. So. Yeah, we're excited. Oh, me too. <laughs> That's incredible, dude. I love, yeah, like I said earlier, I just, I love meeting with people that are truly 
have innovative ideas to make the world more better for everyone, man. Oh, it's, it's really a pleasure. Um, one other thing that popped in my head, Paul, I was wondering if, uh, like, it's another subject I've heard off and on over the past couple of years, never really delved deeply into it, but, uh, and that's uh, the importance of the gut biome. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that in general. Um, one of the things that you guys talk about is having, since you have this company and this way of producing food, there's no pesticides. And so there's very few random chemicals that end up in your body and end up messing up with your gut biome. And I recently discovered a doctor who often talks about the importance of gut biome. And he talked about how we basically have to purge our gut biome of the buildup of what is it, glyphosate that has been building up over the years of eating commercial plants and stuff like that. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no doubt. Um, the gut is your second brain. Mm. And, you know, you can be in a really strong mindset and be as mindful as you want. But if you're eating cheeseburgers all day, you're never going to be able to get to and achieve the levels that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. Hence, again, MTHFR. Right. I really would uh, encourage you to look into the benefits of understanding your MTHFR okay. um, and understanding if you have MTHFR um, uh, impairments and the effects that can have on your body, especially even from an aging perspective. Mm. So, you know, that is one of the biggest things in regards to ridding the toxins that are in your body. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So I'm curious. Um, it is like you say you use the genetic makeup of people to determine what's good for them and what works for them in, in particular, but is there any, um, is there any generalization? Like, would you be able to recommend to me as a Caucasian male, something that I should be eating or shouldn't be eating? You know, um, that is such a complex question that that that's not, there's no simple answer. To yeah. You would have, you need my genetic makeup. Yeah, I mean, you're talking to somebody who just goes in rabbit holes all the time with science and, you know, mm. sometimes comes out ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> gotcha. Cool. Right on. Well, uh, just to uh, end it off, I'm just curious, like, I always talk about this with pretty much all my guests. Uh, you guys are clearly innovators and you want to change the world in a more positive way. So I'm just curious, like, what your vision is. Like, obviously, you have this idea for growing your business, but where do you see us in, in the distant future? Do you, can you see us creating a world where everybody's actually taken care of everybody's actually fed uh do you think we can get to the point where everybody is has their basic needs met you know and not even necessarily just necessarily in a uh, societal change type of like you know change from capitalism to communism but like from my point of view i think it's necessary to abolish all isms you know and just think of think of it more simply like is everybody got food on their table? Does everybody have shelter? Does everybody have energy? Does everybody have clothes on their back? And then we can talk about everything afterwards on how we should run things. But the main goal to me should be to give everybody in the world their basic needs. So I'm curious if you guys have any had profound visions yourself about where you see the world going. I'll let you go first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of the partners in this company have other businesses. They, you know, we've had success in other companies and I think, you know, you get to a point in your life where it's like, it's just a little bit more about, you know, doing something good than mm. making money. So I think, uh, we can get a better connection, you know, where we start with younger generations, mm. um, understanding where their food comes from and, and it's important to have that connection with food. Right. I think if we can start there, then, 
then we can make big changes. I see, I see this company uh, scaling very quickly over mm-hmm. the next three to five years. We have, we have some people in some high places. So Amazing. we're going to be able to do some stuff, hopefully on a federal level, not only in the United States, but some other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we can do that, then, then we can make the change that we would like to make. Awesome. So it's going to take a lot of work, but yeah, we're it'll be worth. We're it. making progress every day, so yeah, awesome. That's good yeah. to hear. So that is a deep question. question. <laughs> that is That's a what deep. I do, man. I love the deep questions. We go deep on my podcast. All right. Um, you know, the answer to your question is, I think, in the most basic terms, self management. Mm. Um, I don't think we can sit here and point fingers at the federal government or any of our governments or any of our politicians. We've got to take control ourselves. Mm. So uh, innovators and entrepreneurs such as ourselves, of course, that's where we want to be. And of course, that's where we want to see these things. And of course, that's why we do what we do, because we want to see that. But there's also, you know, other sides that fight that. Mm -hmm. And there's other sides that don't necessarily line up with those same key attributes. Mm. Um, So, if we were to be able to have a society that self-regulated themselves, did what's good for best and best for all, mm. um, there's no doubt we could get there, but it would take a completely different mind shift for, from a lot of our uh, individuals that, you know, share the same space as us. Agreed. Yeah. hundred percent. I think uh, I'll often say that it starts with the individual because if you want to change the world, you got to change yourself. You got to be a shining yeah. light for what you want the world to be essentially. Yeah, I mean, if you're a taker and you just think everybody's going to be doing something for you and you're not willing to provide back, mm-hmm. you know, um, I do believe in karma and maybe there's a reason why you're in the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Wow. Cool. So uh, with that, I guess, man, um, we'll bring it to a close. So I'm curious. Um, well, I'm just curious. I, can people invest in you? Is there a way to uh, contribute to your company? Well, you go again, Jake. <laughs> well, we're uh, we we are self funded right now, so we we are going to bring on uh, possibly a, a strategic partner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But for uh, for funding, I I we would certainly entertain a conversation. But a partner that we're going to be bringing on most likely is going to help us with uh, strategy with you know outsourcing manufacturing logistics right and uh really the heart of our company is we're a logistics company right that also fabricates these these farms that you can deploy you know anywhere mm-hmm. so um yeah we we certainly entertain that um right now we don't really need capital right on let's uh, go to here I, I think we're going to be at the point soon where uh, a capital raise like a, a venture capital raise you know may not be needed, but we have, we have had offers. We were trying to find the right strategic partner. So That's excellent. We, we can certainly talk about it if, if anyone's interested. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned that before that you're, you're primarily a logistics company, but you make these uh, farms. So uh, what else does your company do aside from these farms? So Rusty Walker's our CEO. Uh, we brought him on uh, about a year and a half into the company. He has a logistics company called Absolute Logistics. Mm-hmm. He does rail cars, you know, everything from, um, you know, small to large logistics on a global scale. Okay. So what I mean by a logistics company is we have the ability to scale this rather than 
having roadblocks, you know, we can get stuff figured out, how to ship stuff to Africa, set up a hundred of these in, you know, a different country. Right. Whereas other other companies may not understand the logistics side. Right. So, um, yeah, I I mean, we would certainly entertain the right partnership, but uh, we want to, we don't really, we're not really looking for money. We Mm -hmm. would rather have a strategic partner that can help us. Right. Right. That we, Maybe lacking because we're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've tried to bring on the right partners in different areas, um, but we, you know, we're certainly not perfect. So, right. and you guys have what been only at this for like what three years? Is it? Yeah, it'll be three years in uh, October this oh, year. Cool. Wow. So yeah, you're doing pretty we well. Spent so about far. the first year and a half building our our first farm, right? And doing R and D and testing and growing mm, right. stuff, and then we spent the last year. Uh, you know, doing the mushroom farm and now figuring out how we're going to be able to build, you know, a hundred of these at a time. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's what we've been working on. And now we're at the point where we're ready to scale. So, Very cool. Excellent. Yeah. We wanted to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. Yeah. With that being said, uh, we definitely need a strategic partner. Mm. Um, are you familiar with some of the food initiatives that are going on in Japan? Uh, I'm not sure. No. Okay, so Nestle and Japan as a country have teamed together to do genetic testing and personalized supplementation for all their uh, for their citizens. Okay, so they're getting further ahead of this because they do realize that there is the food shortages, there is the inequality in food, right. and everybody's bodies do require different supplementation, different diets. Mm. So they have been investing heavily. They've put a billion dollars. Uh, invested into it and have raised a billion dollars for this initiative. Right um, so we're looking for the right visionaries, mm-hmm. the right strategic partner. And again, it comes down to the company that really wants to do good. Mm. I haven't asked for you now. Mm. What's there? Do you have any connections to Kimball Musk? Kimball Musk? That related to Elon? Elon Musk's brother. No, never even knew he existed. Yeah, uh, Kimball Musk actually uh, helped Elon make PayPal. Okay. And he's gone and he has his own restaurants, but he has his own shipping containers that he produces his food in at those restaurants. Ah. So he'd be somebody who would be a strategic partner that we're looking to connect with and teach because he's already understands about 50% of the business already. So he's somebody that could be a quick learner and also most likely has the ability to get the funds to take us to that level right. and SpaceX or Tesla, mm. what we're doing. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Oh dude, that's exciting. <laughs> well, if I ever come across them, you know, if we ever cross paths, I'll send them your way, man. Well, hopefully there's a listener on here who does know them. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. All right, cool. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to say before we go. Um, hmm. I guess that pretty much covers it. You guys, that was amazing. Uh, all the information was very helpful. I understand a little bit more about how it all works. And uh, I'm excited for you guys to keep growing. Uh, Thank you. This is definitely a, a double entendre there. Grow your business and grow your food. <laughs> hey, man. Well, hey, thanks for just even allowing us to come on your show. Thanks for us telling you a little bit about what our vision is. Mm-hmm. And um, we just, uh, we're looking forward to seeing what this goes. Yeah, man. So, um, where can just for anybody who's listening wants to learn more about you? I know you got an Instagram account, um, you got a website as well. So, if you just want to tell me what all those thing, links are, where could people learn more about you in general? 
Okay, so from the genetic testing and the personalized medicine perspective, mm -hmm. it's vertisome, and that's V-E-R-D-O-S-O-M-E. Okay. And how we came up with the name is we're a green genetics company for uh, food and food sources. Mm -hmm. So verde, green, chromosome genetics, that's how oh, we came okay. together with vertisome. Gotcha. And then for Jake, uh, it's farmboxfoods.com mm -hmm. and also on Instagram, farmboxfoods. Right on. Cool. That pretty much covers it. All right, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, it's, it's been my pleasure. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this wonderful information. Thank you, sir. Awesome. So good luck with everything you do, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Take care. Peace.